0: Hello Skywatchers, thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Greg. And I'm Dara. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in July in our Cosmic Diary.
1: So when you're looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. You should allow about 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark And do remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when you're stargazing and if you are using a star app on your phone then make sure to switch on the red night vision mode
0: throughout the month look towards the west after the setting Sun and you'll find the planet Venus the Roman goddess of love hanging bright in the sky on the evening of 9th of July Venus will be close beside the star Regulus, only one degree apart in the sky. That's about the width of your little finger held out at arm's length. This blue-white-coloured star rotates much faster than most, spinning only 15% below the speed at which it would fly apart. Its rapid rotation means that Regulus bulges out around its centre and is more of an oblate spheroid shape, a flattened sphere. And if you wait until the 15th, you'll also be able to catch the thin, waxing crescent moon in the frame with this pair.
1: Now although July isn't a favourable month to catch meteors, there are several meteor showers that are beginning to become active, which then peak at the end of the month or even in August. The Alpha Cap recorded meteor shower is active between the 11th of July and 10th of August and the Delta Aquarid shower becomes active around the 21st of July, up until about the 23rd of August. Now both showers peak around the end of the month, around the 27th to the 29th of July, but they are very weak. You may still be able to catch the very bright fireballs, so look towards the south after midnight, where the radiance of these showers will appear in the constellations of Capricornus and the neighbouring Aquarius. However, the Perseids meteor shower, a more impressive display, also becomes active from the 13th of July, but it doesn't peak until August.
0: By the 19th of July, the first quarter moon will appear close to another one of the naked-eye planets, Jupiter, and will be even closer to the brightest star in the constellation of Virgo, called Spica. Look to the southwest before midnight to see the trio of objects. The moon does appear to move quite quickly across the sky from night to night and will be closer to Jupiter on the following night. However, Jupiter will remain in the southwest throughout the month and is a fantastic target for any evening.
1: And the quarter phases of the moon are a great opportunity to spot craters. The terminator, which is the boundary between the light and dark parts of the moon, is where the craters appear more prominent due to the shadows cast by the crater walls. So if you do have a pair of binoculars or even a telescope, you might want to take them out and get a closer look at these features.
0: Although Mars is a planet visible to the naked eye, it's normally quite faint. However, on the early morning of the 27th of July, Mars reaches opposition. It will be below the horizon when it reaches the exact moment, but you can catch it just before in the hours after midnight looking towards the south. The opposition is when Mars is on the opposite side of the Earth compared to the Sun. The alignment of these bodies during opposition means that Mars is at its closest position to the Earth and so appears much brighter. The opposition for this year is quite favourable too, as Mars is also particularly close to the Sun in its elliptical orbit, meaning Mars will be even brighter than Jupiter. It will still appear as a star-like point of light, so you'd need a telescope to distinguish its shape and other features. You can spot Mars throughout the month, but it will only be considerably brighter for a few weeks on either side of this date.
1: And by chance, there is also a total lunar eclipse on the 27th of July. The full moon will pass into the Earth's shadow, where sunlight would normally be unable to reach it. However, the Earth's atmosphere scatters or bends the Sun's light such that the long wavelength red light is bent by just the right amount that it illuminates the Moon giving it a reddish hue. Now unfortunately the Moon will have already begun to pass into the Earth's shadow when it is still below the horizon for UK viewers, so when it rises it will already appear a red colour. But the maximum eclipse, when the Moon is closest to the centre of the Earth's shadow, occurs at 9.21 local time, uh, when the Moon will actually be low in the southeastern sky. Now, close to midnight, the Moon will be leaving the Earth's shadow, and it will have lost its red colour. But by then, Mars will be clearly visible to catch in all its glory.
0: If you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them in to at ROG astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website rmg.co.uk but now it's time for our cosmic news
1: so welcome back to the cosmic news part of our podcast this is where greg and myself each pick a news story from this previous month that we have found really interesting and we're going to share those news stories with you and we want you to pick your favorite when we put them to the test on twitter so greg's going to start off with his story this month i know there's been quite a few this month to pick from. so what have you chosen greg
0: Well, I couldn't really decide on one specific one, so what I've done is I've gone with a trio of different news stories all around one specific topic, and that is the planet Mars.
1: Oh, it's a good one to pick.
0: Absolutely. Uh, There's been a lot of really interesting news coming from Mars over the last few weeks. Um, uh, Mars is actually the best explored of all of the planets in our solar system, besides our own Earth. Uh, We've sent more probes, more satellites, more rovers and landers to the surface of Mars than to any other planet in our solar system. Um, And one of the main reasons for that is that it is in some ways similar to our own Earth. It's a small, rocky planet um, that... Uh, may at some point have had conditions similar to the early Earth. In other words, at the time when our Earth was just beginning to form life, very simple life, bacteria, on our planet, maybe Mars was doing the same. And the search for life on Mars has been a big aim of most of these missions. And there's been big news on two fronts, uh, both coming from the Curiosity rover. So this was the rover that was launched in, uh, landed on the surface, sorry, in 2012. Um, And... The Curiosity rover is already an extremely impressive machine. It's basically the size and weight of a small car. It's a beast. Yeah, it's an an absolutely huge rover. Most of the early rovers were tiny, tinky little things. Um, This thing is an absolute beast of a machine. Um, And one of its main aims has been, as with most of them, to try to find evidence of this life on Mars. And over the last six years at this point, Uh, it's been slowly climbing the side of a a sizable mountain basically on the surface of Mars and on its way it's been checking out uh, certain rocks, certain features that might have been carved by water indicating that maybe there might have been life there. Um, And one of the things it's been doing is it's actually been testing the atmosphere of Mars. So no, every now and then... It doesn't
1: have a tongue. It doesn't, doesn't have, have a tongue. nose, nope. ears. How's it doing this? But
0: it has, it has a, a, an instrument on it which is capable of analysing the atmosphere, uh, basically breathing in a small amount of the atmosphere, analysing the gases in it and checking what levels they are. Um, and the atmosphere of Mars is very, very thin. It's only about 1% that of the, of the Earth. So the atmospheric pressure is very, very low. Um, but that doesn't mean it doesn't still have some interesting things in it. And one thing, one particular chemical, which is very rarefied in the atmosphere, so it's very rare, there's very very little of it, um, is methane. Uh, Methane is a very common uh, gas here on Earth, and one reason why it's so interesting is that on Earth it's a very clear indicator of life. It's not uniquely produced by life, but a vast quantity of the different things that we do here on the Earth produces large quantities of methane.
1: So there are lots of creatures here on the Earth that, as a byproduct, may produce methane.
0: Absolutely, yes. And it's also a considerable byproduct of, um, of farming, actually. One when, when uh, produces a lot, uh, agriculture produces a lot of methane as well. Um, and so. The Curiosity rover has been checking the levels of methane, which we knew were there. We knew there was some methane, which, as I say, it could have been produced by things other than life. But what it's just noticed is that the levels of methane are changing on the surface of Mars. And more interestingly, they are changing seasonally. So whatever levels they are in winter, they will change as they go towards the summer and then change back when they go towards the winter. Um, so to give you an idea of how rare methane is actually on mars it's about 0.2 parts per billion uh, in winter so for every billion molecules or uh, bits of atmosphere that you find on mars 0.2 of those billion will be methane
1: do you know it's incredible that a rover, or you know, a piece of technology we sent, can measure on a distant it's, planet things that are that tiny.
0: Absolutely, it's extremely sensitive um, to extremely sensitive to ch- these changes, and extremely sensitive to finding this methane on Mars. Thing is, that's point two parts per billion in winter, but in summer it's point six, so it triples over the course of the the year and then drops back down um, towards winter again. Um, now. For something to change seasonally, that could just mean that it's responding to heat or light coming from the sun. Because uh, at different times over the course of the year, Mars has a similar tilt to the Earth, so it gets the same sort of seasons of winter and summer that we do. So maybe this is just the rocks or something on the surface of Mars just reacting inactively to the change in light levels or
1: (laughs) i knew there was a however
0: or maybe it might actually be active life on the surface of mars producing more methane at times when there would be more life around more sunlight more energy potentially more life
1: i'm kind of yeah thinking about the idea of you know prey predator and you know when the conditions are right you may have lots more creatures there lots more organisms they're producing more methane but in the winter (laughs) Perhaps there are fewer of them. They've yep. they've died off.
0: For so to, to be clear, this we're not really talking about complex life forms here. We are talking about single-celled organisms, probably at best. There are other ways that this could also be an indicator of life. Maybe this methane is being released seasonally and that methane was originally produced by life. Unfortunately, methane is not a chemical that you can tell just by looking at it necessarily, whether it is produced by life or produced by um inorganic processes so things which don't involve life um, one way that might be possible to do it is to check for a specific isotope of carbon so methane is made out of carbon and hydrogen um, but life prefers one specific type of carbon which has a slightly different mass to other types of carbon um, So if we can ever get to the point where we are checking the isotopes of methane on Mars, then maybe, maybe we'll have some indicators whether it's been produced by life or not. But at the moment, we don't have that ability, so we can't do that just yet. So the second story that has come from Curiosity as well uh, is that it's been checking along the side of uh, something called Gale Crater, Um, which is a particular feature on the surface of Mars and also actually has uh, what we know to be an ancient lake bed as well. So there definitely used to be water in this part of Mars. It's one of the reasons why Curiosity was dropped where it was. And it also has, Curiosity has the ability to drill down into the surface of Mars and just take small samples, not very far, um, only a few centimetres below the surface. But Enough that you can start to look below the radiation drenched uh, top soil sure. of, of, of um, Mars, which probably wouldn't have any life left in it. So it's been checking deeper and it has found a complex hydrocarbon. So this is a complex organic molecule. The organic doesn't necessarily mean that it's produced by life, but the more complex the hydrocarbon you find, the more complex the string carbon atoms with hydrogen attached to them that you find the more likely it is that it was produced by life. And this is the most complex hydrocarbon that we found so far on Mars. This particular type of hydrocarbon um, is called a thiophene um, which means that it also includes at least one sulfur atom somewhere in the molecule um, which is key to actually preserving the the compound sulfur atoms in the molecule is useful for for keeping the compound uh, intact Um, and stopping it from breaking up through radiation and all sorts of other things. So that's good. Both interesting, tantalising glimpses of life on Mars. However... I knew it! There is some bad news, I'm afraid. Uh, At the moment, uh, Curiosity is one of two rovers which are on the surface of Mars. The other one is Opportunity. Now, Opportunity, unlike Curiosity, is a solar-powered rover uh, on the opposite side of the planet from where Curiosity is. Uh, Opportunity has been running since 2004.
1: So it's a slightly it, older one. Slightly older, and yeah. this is the twin rover.
0: It's, it's, it is a different, uh, different class of rover. It's a different type, but uh, it is working at the same time on similar projects. Um, and actually, it was only supposed to last about 90 days. We're now 14 years in. So it's doing well. Um, the problem is, because it is solar-powered... Mars actually has a big problem with with dust storms. So even though its atmosphere is very very light, it can throw dust up into uh, up into the atmosphere, which can block sunlight. And if your uh, if your rover is solar powered, it very much needs all of that sunlight. And unfortunately, right now Mars is having a particularly bad dust storm, which is covering almost the entire surface of the planet.
1: Poor Opportunity. Yeah.
0: So Opportunities. Uh, solar power levels are at critical. They don't have, they're basically not receiving any sunlight. Certainly not enough to power the the, uh, the rover. Uh, it has powered down uh, into a sort of a hibernation stage, uh, and is hoping to outlast the storm. It's not clear whether it will. Uh, there are some issues with if it gets too cold, that can severely impact its battery life. Um, But, luckily, the dust storm is actually acting like an insulator and keeping the the rover a little warmer than it would normally be. So, that's a good thing. Uh, Hopefully, Opportunity will survive this this storm. It's survived bigger in the past, so it should be capable of doing it. But then again, it is a very old rover at this point, 14 years, much, much longer than it was intended to last. So we're there's keeping always our a fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Opportunity will come back. Just in case you're wondering, Curiosity is built with uh, nuclear power, so it actually doesn't suffer from this. Uh, so it's actually just watching the storm um, and hoping. I suppose that its a twin on the other side, its brother on the other side, is will be okay eventually. So hopefully. Wow. Before too long, some more good news from Mars.
1: Well, what a lovely couple of stories you've uh, tangled together there all about Mars this month. And uh, like you said, goods with bads, but hopefully all optimistic for the future. Mm -hmm. Um, And speaking of optimism, the story I've chosen for this month is actually to do with evidence for a rare type of black hole. Um, so there are various types of black holes. You get the, the stellar mass black holes. Mm-hmm. They're created when very massive stars end their lives. They go supernova and they leave behind a little remnant star. Uh, and if there's enough mass or material left over, something along the lines of you know, three or more times the mass of our sun, uh, we'll get a stellar mass black hole. And then you've got the beasts. You've got the supermassive black holes. These are the ones that lurk at the centre of large galaxies. Um, it's not really sure maybe how they were actually created. Uh, this is still uh, kind of being discovered or trying to uh, kind of find out more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's,
0: that's the subject of, uh, of one of our earlier podcasts as well. Yes, we have talked about supermassive them. black holes.
1: Um, these are big. So the one at the mm. centre of our galaxy is thought to be about 4 million times the mass of mm. our sun. So incredibly large. Um, The problem with black holes is that we can't see them. (laughs) Uh, So the only way of detecting them is to detect their interactions with other things around them. So typically we might find uh, something like a stellar mass black hole, the smaller ones. It might be a part of a binary system. Uh, So maybe there's another star orbiting around it too, or they're orbiting around their common center of mass. Uh, This black hole has enough gravity to maybe strip off some of the material from its companion star. A very naughty black hole. Um, (laughs) But as it does feed on that material, uh, it will emit X-rays. Uh, So we can actually detect uh, X-ray light coming from what looks like otherwise invisible objects, uh, evidence of black holes. Um, We can also detect them from their gravitational interactions. So the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy was detected by looking at the orbital motions of stars orbiting around the centre of our galaxy. Um, These stars are very massive. Uh, They're orbiting around a central, very large object which can't be seen, uh, the inference of that supermassive black hole. But this story is about neither of those. This story is about a rarer member of the black hole family, the intermediate mass black hole. So one that lies between these two extremes. Um, They're really rare. So there have been very few candidates that have actually been found. Uh, But the team of researchers, they were led by a scientist, Da Chung Lin, of the University of New Hampshire in the USA, And they basically detected an enormous flare of radiation uh, in the outskirts of a distant galaxy, which was, they think, caused by a black hole devouring a star that was passing close to it. So we're not talking about the supermassive black holes at the center of our galaxy. Mm. These are these rare intermediate mass black holes. They're founded on the edge of this galaxy. and the only way of detecting this one was when a star was passing by. It stripped off some of its material as it fed on it, emitted X-rays. But they used a whole variety of data to try and find it. So they used ESA's uh, XMM Newton X-ray Telescope. So ESA is the European Space Agency. XMM stands for the X-ray Multimirror. Um, this is the biggest scientific telescope that has been built by Europe. Originally, uh, a two-year mission, so a to uh, opportunity, a very long-lasting one. This one is still going since 1999. Um, and its catalogue contains some of the highest quality data covering the largest areas of our sky. Uh, and currently, uh, it's the largest catalogue of its type. And it contains more than half a million X-ray sources, including exotic objects like this intermediate mass black hole. Uh, And many of these X-ray sources that are found are still waiting to be uh, kind of detected in the sense of what they are. We still don't know what some of these X-ray sources are. Yeah, exactly. Um, So that's one of the ones they use. They also use NASA's Chandra X-ray telescope. Uh, This was also launched in 1999 and still ongoing as well. And it's considered to be one of the greatest observatories in space, along with Hubble, along with uh, the Spitzer Infrared Telescope, and even the Compton Gamma Ray uh, Observatory. The third one they used is the Swift X-ray Telescope. Uh, So this is one of the instruments that was on the SWIFT observatory. Uh, That was launched in 2004, and originally it was called the SWIFT Gamma-ray Burst Mission. So it was designed to monitor uh, the light curve over several weeks, uh, the kind of finding the afterglow of these very high-energy gamma-ray burst events. Um, But they're able to pick up uh, events just like this one, where a black hole may be feeding on the material of a companion star. Uh, all of these telescopes I've just mentioned are actually in space and they have to be because X-rays cannot penetrate well enough through the Earth's atmosphere uh, for us to detect them with ground-based telescopes. But the research group also used a whole host of other telescopes, ground-based and in space, uh, to look at what the emission looked like optically as well. So we weren't just looking with X-rays, they were using visible light to look at this uh, intermediate black hole. Um What they found is that this is the best candidate they have. It's the best intermediate mass black hole they've ever observed so far. Uh, They've calculated that its mass is roughly about 50,000 times the mass of our Sun. Uh, And they do this by looking at uh, the speed of the star orbiting around the black hole or the the speed of the gas moving around. Using Kepler's laws, it gives us an idea of the mass of that central object, the black hole. Um, It's located within a massive cluster of stars. And like I mentioned, that cluster of stars lies on the outskirts of a galaxy. That galaxy is about 740 million light years away from us. That means its light takes 740 million years to get to us. Um, But how do we actually detect these intermediate mass black holes? There are two doubts away. So one of them is a runaway merger of massive stars that are lying within those dense clusters. So this one was found in a dense cluster, um, and sometimes you get a merging of some of those most massive stars. They will form a, an intermediate mass black hole, but by the time that black hole is formed, lots of the gas around it has pretty much been it's eaten up. It's yeah. gone. And so, there's no material for that black hole to consume. And if it's not accreting, it's not dark. emitting. Yep. So, we can't really find them there. They're difficult to spot. The other thing we can do is wait for a star to pass close by and become disrupted by the black hole's uh, appetite. Um, as it gets close, it will start accreting some of that material. And that's what had happened in this case. That's what they've observed. Now, detections like this are or have only ever been seen near the center of galaxies, um, never around the outer edges and by comparing all the data they've got from the X-ray observatories and telescopes, they found that this star was actually first disrupted in uh, 2003, and over the next decade or so, uh, that light has been emitting and then fading out. Um, But stars that trigger outbursts like this, uh, so an intermediate mass black hole that is triggered by uh, a star or the material from a star, they're only thought to happen very rarely. For a star to pass close by enough to a black hole, for it to feed on it isn't uh, a common thing so the fact that we've actually observed this suggests that there probably are even more of these intermediate mass black holes lurking around the edges of galaxies in our local universe um, and these are vast catalogs of data that i was talking about from these x-ray telescopes um, and By no means there's going to be plenty more of these intermediate mass black holes lacking in that data, but it is so time consuming to actually go through the, you know, the millions and millions of bits of data. So it's going to take a a bit of an effort to get there. But this is actually a huge piece of evidence in learning more about black holes and their associated phenomena. Um, A really good analogy I heard about this is uh, this is like aliens looking to us on the earth and they're seeing grandparents walking their grandkids to school. Uh, They can infer from that that there's probably an intermediate stage in the life of a human, uh, something between grandparents and grandkids... But unless you actually see them, you can't conclude that they are there. Uh, So without seeing these intermediate mass black holes, we couldn't really say they were there. But now we've started to find evidence for them. And we're going to better be able to fit the picture together between those very small stellar mass black holes and the super massive ones as well. So I think this is um, a really great story, adding another piece to the puzzle Eventually, I hope that we will have that completed picture, but no doubt our puzzle will keep growing and we'll have lots more questions to answer, <laughs> lots more pieces to fill in around them. Um, so that's my story for this month, The Evidence of a Rare Type of Black Hole.
0: Oh, a well, fascinating story, absolutely. So those are our stories for this month. Uh, do you remember that you have the chance to vote on your favourite on our Twitter feed? That's at ROG Astronomers. Um, last month, we uh, had a similar vote. Uh, we had two stories. Uh, Dara's, Dara's story was on the strangely shaped moons of Saturn, these ravioli shaped moons. Uh, and mine was on the an update on the, the Gaia mission surveying uh, a vast fraction of the stars oh, in the galaxy. Oh, break it to me, Greg.
1: What were the results? Well,
0: uh, I'm afraid to say... That Dara's uh, strangely shaped moons got 15% of the votes. Not too many interested then. And uh, my Gaia mission got 85% of the votes. Well done, Greg. I think you're
1: storming away with the lead in these stories. I fear I am, yes. You're going to have to try and pull some back.
0: So hopefully, uh, vote for Dara's uh, news story this month, and maybe we'll get her a win. So, um, in order to listen to our other podcasts, you can find them all on SoundCloud or on iTunes. Uh, All you need to do is search for uh, Royal Observatory Greenwich and you'll be able to find us on either of those. I hope you join us next month for more from Look Up.